Hi, everyone. It's Carrie from All the Social Ladies, and I've got an offer just for you. Social Fresh has a conference coming up in September in Tampa, Florida. Social Fresh 2015. It is where the world's leading social marketers get inspired, and I'm so excited to be recording this podcast live from there this September. I'd love to invite you to join me. So head on over to socialfreshconference.com and use the special code ATSL for 50 additional dollars off your admission. It's an amazing conference. I was there last year, and I hope you'll join me this year and help record some All the Social Ladies podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest and record one of your social ladies tips, it would be a great time to come on down. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kirpin. Now, Carrie Kirpin. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of All the Social Ladies. I'm Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media, and today I am so excited to have on the show Jen McClure. Jen McClure is the VP of Digital and Social Media at Thomson Reuters. With nearly 30 years of experience, she leads the company's Digital Center of Excellence, and her role focuses on digital strategy, enablement, and governance. In 2008, Jen helped launch the Redwood Collaborative Media and served as CMO from 2008 to 2010. Before that, she had offered her marketing expertise at a number of firms, also co-produced and co-hosted a community affairs radio program, so she is no stranger to the podcast. She did that in the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, she's been recognized for a lot of her amazing talent. She's received a bunch of awards and she's served on boards and she's got a lot of experience to share with us today. And that is why I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much. So fun to have you on. And so tell me, so you have nearly 30 years of experience, which is really incredible for our listeners. We've got a lot of younger listeners who are just starting in their careers. So I would love for you to share sort of the story of your career and how you got to where you are today. Uh, That would be great if you could give us just some insight on how you even got started and how you got into digital. Sure. It's, you know, it's funny to look back and to think that I've had 30 years of experience makes me feel and sound really old. Um, But maybe as some of your listeners will be able to relate to, I kind of didn't have a plan. Um, I I went to school for a liberal arts degree. I studied a lot of different things. I had a lot of interests. One thing I loved to do was write. Um, And where I started was um, initially one of my first jobs was writing marketing copy for an organization that um, sold newsletters and did conferences and trade shows and education around what at the time was new media, meaning um, tapes. No <laughs> way. Looking at how um, how VCRs were going to disrupt television viewing, how audio tapes were disrupting radio. You know, so I've been looking at media disruption for almost thirty years. Um, following that. I worked for a company called New Electronic Media Science, and that was a really, really exciting place to cut my teeth on really looking at very future-facing ideas around um, the disruption of cable, um, telecom consolidation, um, and and even our our CEO was was such a futurist. He was talking about 
computer and and even though the, we, you know computers were really new at the time, but he was already talking about computer and TV convergence, and we're talking back in the late 80s, early 90s. So um, still kind of not knowing where that was going to lead me. Um, I became a business reporter for several years and then moved to the dark side and became a PR person. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, first on the consumer side um, with Ketchum serving uh, Visa as our primary client, and then to the tech industry working for Ziff Davis, so another large... Um, technology and, and publishing company, um, leading both PR and marketing in different divisions and, and then kind of settling in on the, uh, the infrastructure market through Interop. And so doing a lot of PR with, with um, net, networking infrastructure companies, which is what led me to when I started an agency focusing in primarily on Silicon Valley startups and primarily in the, in the networking infrastructure um, space. Um, and then social started to happen, and that's when things got really exciting. So at the time, our agency was, I think, one of the first. We didn't call ourselves a social media agency, but um, what we recognized was that we were dealing with some very, very technical and complicated technologies mm-hmm. um, with our clients. And it was happening at the same time that the technology publications were starting to reduce their editorial staffs that had the expertise to cover these industries in depth and in a really sophisticated way. So when we were able to work with our clients to help them tell their own stories through blogs and and very early on podcasts and newsletters and um, that kind of marketing communications, not only did we noticed that we were able to tell our own story more effectively and without the filter of media. But then in many cases, media were coming to us saying, can we republish this? And, mm. you know, what, what's better than that? So, um, so that sounded to us like a, a pretty big shift, a pretty important um, change in the way that new technology was enabling the way that companies were able to tell their own stories. And so my then business partner and I, launched what we think was probably one of the first conferences on the social web called New Communications Forum. That led to a nonprofit called Society for New Communications Research, um, which is a nonprofit um, that focuses on how uh, emerging technologies are affecting media, business, culture, society. And, And we founded that because we weren't seeing the traditional associations focusing in on this. And in fact, Public Relations Society, IABC, those those associations early on really weren't sure that this stuff was going to be long lasting, or was it, you know, was social just a fad? Um, I think you know now we know. Um, <laughs> and but as you mentioned in your intro, um, I I was very excited to be able to be part of a. Uh, one of the first kind of online community approaches of trying to take a, a traditional media company focused on uh, the software profession and, and turn it into an online community. So that that was that was pretty exciting. And then in 2010, I joined Thomson Reuters. And initially, my uh, my focus was purely on social media, and since then has expanded to all things digital, um, and we just launched the Digital Center of Excellence, which is, is a very broad-ranging um, platform kind of internally to um, help to ensure that we have a strategic and consistent approach to our digital strategy um, and the way that we manage all things digital across the company. 
Okay. And so I have a big question in listening to you because I'm fascinated about what you're doing at Thompson, but I also want to know how was it, it, you went from, you know, kind of this global PR agency to finding your own agency and being sort of an entrepreneur, right? And then going back into the corporate world, was that difficult to do? And if so, are you happy you started your own business? I want to hear about that. And then once you started it and then went back, was that a difficult transition? It's such a great question, and it's such a great question for a female audience because one of the reasons that I left Ziff Davis was because I wanted to have a family, and um, I was doing 17 events a year. I literally sat by my desk with a suitcase, and that doesn't work very well when you want to have a family, and so uh, I made the difficult choice, and I had... Uh, the advantage of not only a very supportive husband, but, you know, we had the wherewithal where I, I could fail if I needed to. Yep. And that made all the difference. And fortunately, I didn't fail. I'd, I'd made a lot of fantastic connections, um, both on the media side as well as the potential customer side um, when I was at Ziff Davis. And um, that allowed me to have the flexibility to have a family, um, have one of the the first virtual PR agencies that was out there. In fact, um, my business partner was located in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was out here, and everyone that we hired were primarily females and primarily contractors who wanted to have the same kind of flexibility that we wanted for ourselves. And uh, we did very well. And um, so I was able to spend, you know, 10 good years before I thought, well, it's time to, it's time to think again about re-entering the corporate world. And, and Thomson Reuters was such an amazing opportunity. There was no way that um, I wanted to say no to that. And at the time, my kid was, was 10. So, you know, kind of that, those early years of needing that real, real big hands-on um, time, it, it, it felt right. But I will say that, you know, when you do things like that, you have to be ready for some trade-offs um, yes. in terms of when you get back in, your title may not be where you think it should be. Um, you're going to have to probably prove yourself um, to an even higher extent because you haven't been climbing that corporate ladder. You've kind of doing things your own way a little bit, um, and it's not always looked at the same way in terms of the experience that you might have. Um, and um, also... You know, working within the framework of a large corporation is a lot different than um, when you're acting as a consultant or um, or an agency partner. Yes, I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs say is that when they go back to enter into the workforce, it's you know going into um, a corporate space takes a a pretty big adjustment. Yeah, yeah. So, in terms of what you're doing for Thompson, so I love that you talked about going from doing exclusively social to full-on digital. Can you talk to me a little bit, because I know a lot of our listeners hear digital and they think social, like that it's all just one thing and that there's there's really nothing else to it. Can you talk to me a little bit about sort of the difference between the two and how, what, how your job shifted when you went from social to just running all of digital? Like what were you looking at there? Sure. Um, so the history is that, you know, Thomson Reuters, has, is a very large company. We have 57,000 employees. We operate in more than 100 countries. Um, we have over 1,500 products. And, and it's primarily been built by acquisition over the years. And it was okay that we had a very extensive and 
distributed digital landscape, as in 1,200 websites, 600 branded social media presence points, lots of back-end systems. And, you know, most of the the product marketing came out of um, not even just the business units, but even smaller product marketing groups within the business units. We are now going to market as Thomson Reuters. And we're really taking much more of an enterprise approach to the way that we go to market, and that necessitates that we have an enterprise digital strategy. Um, and so that does not just mean social. Right. It means our web landscape, our e-commerce platforms, our CRM systems, our um, Salesforce systems, our, uh, well, I just said CRM and Salesforce, obviously that's the same thing, and social <laughs> and, mo- <laughs> and mobile apps. And so, so the purview of the digital governance that I oversee is web, and that includes marketing, e-commerce, customer support. So web, mobile, social, online communities, and search. And wow. Search because we were, um, in some cases, competing against ourselves for search. So having an enterprise approach to search, not only on-site search, but also um, paid and organic search is, is really important when you're trying to create an, a good, consistent digital user experience for our customers. Um, and then extended upon that, not under my purview, but something we think a lot about is, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that we're supporting and aligning marketing and sales through our digital strategy. Um, so we think about things like CRM and integrations into our CRM system, sales enablement systems, um, making sure that the content that our marketers are putting out there is easily accessible to sales so they can use that in their initiatives and that we're gathering all of those analytics around how our audiences are interacting with our content, whether it's across social or across web or um, through a marketing automation platform, uh, that we're gathering all of that so that we can gain better insights and be more agile and responsive in our marketing. And so how does an organization that is this huge, this huge set a kind of global social strategy? How do you approach that even? And, and what is the overarching kind of strategy? What are you trying to achieve through social with Thomson Reuters? I think the most important thing that we've done, and, and I won't take credit for this because this was the framework that had been put in place before I got there. Uh, there was a social media task force that was kind of self-formed and it was, it was kind of small and it wasn't that active. But I saw that as such a great foundation when I, when I came to Thomson Reuters almost five years ago now to bring together a community of people who were beginning to use a pretty early, especially in a B2B uh, environment where we serve highly regulated industries, um, it was very early use. So to have that community approach where people could gather together and explore new things and what they were doing and share their best practices and their challenges and their questions became the absolute foundation for the way that we have built up um, what is now the center of excellence has always been built on a community of practice framework. So it started with social. That was our first task force. And then we started looking at, you know, where where else do we need to gather groups of people that are doing similar things? So, for example, e-commerce. We um, have a very, very active e-commerce task force that has worked collaboratively to put together all of the requirements for what our enterprise-wide e-commerce platform will look like. So across the company currently, we have many, many e-commerce platforms. Our goal is to build one enterprise-wide e-commerce platform 
And in order to do that, we really had to understand the needs of all the businesses. And those are many, uh, depending on the kinds of products that are being sold, the markets they're being sold into. Um, if that's a, a geographic market, you know, the kind of currency issues we need to deal with, regulations, privacy constraints, all of those can be quite different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction or from market to market. And so making sure that we could build a platform that incorporated all those requirements, the only way we could do that was by listening to all of the stakeholders across the company. And, mm. and the best way, yeah, the best way we found to do that was to build these communities of practice so that everybody felt like they had a say into um, the strategy and what we're, what we're trying to move toward. Yes, it's very collaborative. I love that. Oh, absolutely. I love it. And so tell me, what, what would you say... Uh, is the biggest challenge that your organization faces using social media? Well, we have, as I said, a lot of branded social media. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think one challenge is, um, is consolidation. And Mm -hmm. that, that presents a challenge in a number of ways. Some of it is internal, you know, um, you start a social media channel and it's kind of your baby, right? And so uh, if it's not effective, sometimes it's, it's difficult to, it's to let it go. Yeah. That it's, yeah. <laughs> that it's not actually driving business results and maybe it's time to let it go. Right. But I'll say to the social platforms, they don't make it easy to consolidate. I know. Um, and LinkedIn in particular doesn't make it easy to consolidate. And uh, if we don't know who the account owners are of some of these channels, um, it's really difficult to work with the platforms to get some stuff shut down without, you know, short of sending a legal letter or a cease and desist or trademark violation kind of thing. And it really, it should be easier. You know, these, these social platforms have grown up very, very quickly. They really don't understand how to work with the enterprise. Um, And I I think they've gotten a lot better um, over the last five years, a lot better. Um, I remember asking one of the platforms, I don't even remember, with whether it was Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn for a media kit. Um, and they, they honestly didn't, I don't think knew what I was talking about, <laughs> yep. but that was in the early days before there weren't it took a, a long lot of time. It, it took, took a long time. time. It, I, you know, I think that, um, yes, we're still in the early days of paid social, but there's been a bit of catch up on both sides. Yep. Right on the social platform side, understanding how to work with the business and on the business feeling comfortable working with social platforms um, as um, more uh, part of the standard marketing mix. And as you're in the digital center of excellence, I know you're looking at a lot of different groups within Thomson Reuters and what what is working and what's working well. What what business goals and metrics matter most to you in social? What are you what would you say overall you're trying to achieve with social and what goals you're trying to hit? We definitely are trying to drive sales. Yep. I mean, bottom line, that's it, right? Yep. If, if we can help to drive sales, then we can communicate the ROI of social. And I think that's always something that has been elusive. Um, And particularly because one of the um, earliest groups of adopters of social was PR. um, And now it's moved into marketing. But PR has always been challenged to communicate the ROI of what it does in terms of bottom line business results. So we have the opportunity to do that with social. And we actually have one part of our business because of the way we manage social through our platform, we can 
do attribution-based um, analysis where we can track the value right from a blog post to a tweet to a visit to the e-commerce store to, to purchase. And that's, you know, that's the holy grail. Exactly. So that's one. But we also see the value of social in engaging our employees. So we have a, a fairly extensive employee advocacy program that we've rolled out in the last year um, where we have our employees able to, to go into a platform and pick up content and share it across their social networks. We've deployed social selling. So the, the salespeople, um, are, they go through a very intensive training and certification program to become social sellers. And the benefits that they see and the KPIs that we measure on that program are, do you have a better understanding of our customers and our prospects and their business needs as a result of interacting with them across social networks? Are you getting into that sales cycle conversation earlier? Are you increasing your thought leadership and your influence position and, and tr- really transforming yourself from being the, the rep to a valued resource that, right. that can help? And we, we say is always be helping, don't always be selling. Right. right? I think social um, selling is one of the most important and underutilized pieces of social media. The ability to form the relationship and shorten the sales cycle is unbelievable. Absolutely. And we've seen tremendous results and the salespeople love it. It's fun. It's easy. It's something that's empowering to them, to themselves. Um, right before, during, and after they, they will be Thompson Raiders employees. They're always going to need to have a social profile and we, and we're helping them to build that, to build that online profile so that they can engage where our customers are starting and sometimes ending their buying journeys. And, and uh, so we've just seen, we've seen great bottom line results on that. And then all those soft metrics about, you know, increasing thought leadership and increasing influence position and all of that has come along with it and in huge numbers. I mean, like when we survey our, our salespeople about those things and ask them, you know, to what extent do you feel like you have increased your thought leadership, your influence, your understanding of customers? It's in the 85, 90, 95% mm. range. And so as somebody who kind of didn't grow up in the space, right? You've seen disruption way before social. Is this something that now you have trouble shutting off at all? Are you, are you, do you feel yourself kind of tied to being on social and in social? Do you find it difficult to disconnect? Um, I think compared to a lot of folks on social, I'm, it's interesting because I don't feel like I'm a social addict, right? I yep. mean, I don't, yep. I don't tweet that often. I'm kind of yep. surprised I have any followers at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I think I had more followers than tweets, and I did not understand that. Um, I love it. But I, I really, it's funny because over the years, I've figured out what I want to use my channels for. And I think in the early days, I, I wasn't quite sure. I knew I needed to have a social profile, but I, everything was getting used for everything. So the thing that I figured out that works for me is that LinkedIn is pure business, yep. right? And and I use that to follow influencers that I like and care about. I think LinkedIn's done an amazing job over the past year or two of becoming a real content platform. So a lot of the things that I read and discover and share um, from a business perspective come from LinkedIn. Um, and then Facebook I use purely personally to follow, um, you know, friends and family. And I do not use that, um, professionally at all. And in fact, I've, I've kind of removed some of those people who I I don't even remember who they are, 
but right. but initially because I was using everything for everything. Um, so I've really gotten back to just having that be my personal channel. Mm-hmm. And Twitter, I I tend to use a lot of events, and um, if you know there's a, a really big um, industry shaking announcement out there, or I also you know I I try to act as a good employee advocate, and if we have a great announcement or news story or Reuters is, is breaking something. Um, I try, I try to share that across, you know, my Twitter network as well. So that's kind of how I've parsed it out. I really try not to just live on social all day long because, you know, quite frankly, I'm working a, a right. lot. <laughs> right. I would like to have time with my family. <laughs> me too. Me too. I feel the same way. And so if you're looking at, your career and you you've been through all of this disruption. My favorite part of your whole story is the tapes. That's amazing. VCRs <laughs> and looking at how to, how the VHS will, will disrupt. What do you see as the big trend that Thomson Reuters and frankly businesses need to be looking at next? What do you see as something that is really disrupting us currently today? I mean, it's gotta be data. It, yeah. It's so overwhelming for me to think about data. Um, in every way. And, and Thompson Reuters is, is, that's what we do, right? We, yeah. we own more data and information and insights than, than anyone. And that is what we do for our customers as we cut through the clutter and the, the noise and the, the volumes of data and give intelligent insights to people so they can make decisions. But I, in my own world, <laughs> I, I'm overwhelmed by data and I think we all are. Yes. Um, and so it's it's really getting our arms around those systems to um, understand how to use data more effectively, what data really matter, um, and how to govern data. I, I just heard some folks talking um, recently at a, a small industry event that I was at about how they manage data governance and the kind of business um, insights and also competitive advantages they can get because they have such a strict data governance mm. uh, practice and they can they can be more agile they can they can react to changes they can deliver um, better results and um, and they're in a media business so they can actually deliver better more relevant media to their audience you know at the the click of a button because they have so much data that they are getting the insights from so quickly. Um, and I think all, you know, all of us as digital marketers, or all of us in social and, and particularly social, you know, they talk about the firehouse. Um, it's really hard to yeah. sometimes get the insights you're looking for from just um, social monitoring, but there's so much richness there. And I think we, we probably miss more than we not, and not just at Tom Smarters. I'm just saying in everywhere. General. Because Everywhere. you really have to, you, you, you really you have to more dig. than you can take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You really have to dig, and even the um, technologies that are out there to look at, you know, the social sharing and how they perform against one another. If you're looking at different pieces of content, et cetera, there's nothing that really does it to the level that you could. Like you could do this for hours and hours and hours. You could sit there all day and stare at the content and look for the data because it's all there. It's just in these massive, like giant piles. If it makes sense, right. I mean, yeah. and some people do, and I think that's the other thing is that we're not investing enough in data scientists yet as organizations, and, and particularly in people that understand how to use social data effectively. But also, even though the tools have improved drastically over the last few years, um, the amount of, of social signals out there has increased drastically right. over the last few years. I remember when, when we had one of the first um, Snicker conferences in 2007, 
um, we were trending on social. Well, we were trending on Twitter. Well, duh. I mean, we, everybody who picked up Twitter, all 35 of us were sitting in the same room, right? right? So, right. so we would never, obviously, yes. a group yes. of 100 people would never be able to trend on Twitter right now just talking about new, com- new communications and social media. So the, the uh, huge adoption rates... Um, I think make it really challenging, even though the technologies are astounding to be able to gather and monitor and um, analyze social signals. It's just the amount of data going through it. It makes it really, really hard. I agree. And I certainly, if I were talking to anyone to look to what's next, it would be you based off of that history. It's pretty an amazing story you shared with us today. And now we're going to go into our final segment of our interview, which has just flown by because you have some really, really interesting things to say. We are going to go into likable, lovable, loathable. So basically, I'm going to tell you something that's happening in social, and you're going to tell me whether it's likable lovable or loathable. It could also be in the middle. It could be, you know, you could have no opinion. It could go anywhere. And you're welcome to tell us either just your gut reaction of likable, lovable, or loathable, or uh, you can go into why it is such. There we go. Friending. I think this one's really good for you because I know that you have a child at this age. Friending your kids on social media networks, likable, lovable, or loathable. My answer is likable. My son's answer is loathable. Correct. Correct. I, I get every, I have a 12 year old also. And, um, she <laughs> constantly says to me, mom, you're totally stalking my Instagram. Quit liking photos that are old. <laughs> yeah. My, my kid says, don't tag me and don't post photos of me. Yep. It's very serious. Okay. <laughs> uh, the concept of erasable media. So like Snapchat and things, disappearing media. Oh, I think that's an eh for me. I, eh. I could can't see, even call it likable. Yeah, I could. No, I can't call it likable. Um, I could potentially call it loathable because I think there's some nefarious purposes for that. But um, I, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so you are, you've been around for a lot of different technologies. What do you think of the Apple Watch? Likable, lovable, loathable. I have not used it. Um, I have read many reviews of it, and um, from the reviews I've read from people I respect, I gotta give it a ah. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet. I think it's. I think it's, you know, just one notch above Google Glass, probably in terms of real usability. Absolutely. Okay, and last one, the concept of using and connecting with social media influencers, the concept of using influencers to get um, a, a goal achieved or working with influencers. Likeable. Likeable. Lo- yeah, like- lovable even. Yeah, and, and, not, and not just to get goals achieved. I mean, I think the, the real advantage of doing that is they're influential for a reason. And so listening to those people and the fact that they're not necessarily the usual suspects. And this is something that we train on all the time, whether we're training our social sellers or our digital marketers or our PR people on social, is that anyone in social can be an influencer. And that can be good and that can be bad. But don't ever think, oh, I don't have to respond to that because that person doesn't have a big following or because they're not our customer or because they're on Reddit or whatever it is. Right. Everybody can be an influencer. And you go back to the very earliest 
social media case studies of, you know, the bike lock or yep. um, probably some of your listeners don't know what I'm talking about, but the bike lock or the AOL, you know, trying to cancel the AOL um, account or yes. any of those things. Yes. None of those people were famous. None of them were influential. United or not, Guitars, any of you those. Know, oh, yeah. Yes. Dave Carroll, Dave absolutely. Carroll. Yep. Yeah. Um, none of those people thought that they had the influence, but they thought, well, maybe if I use social media, I might be able to have a voice. I might be able to get my story out. And then look what happened. I mean, literally, we see people who previously had no influence in those industries move markets. So um, everybody's an influencer. Lovable. I I love that answer. And I have to say, Jen, you are one fabulous social lady. It was wonderful talking to you. And where should people follow you? We got to get you some more followers on Twitter now. More followers than tweets, more followers than tweets. So on Twitter, I'm at Jen underscore McClure. Uh, Connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'm always happy to to talk to you or to any other social ladies out there. Awesome. Well, you're one fabulous social lady. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com. This week's episode is brought to you by the Social Fresh Conference. You can visit them at socialfreshconference.com and book your ticket today. Social Fresh's conference is where the world's leading social marketers get inspired. And today I have a special offer for you to save $50. The code to enter is ATSL. That's ATSL as in all the social ladies. I'll be down there recording live and I look forward to seeing you. It's a killer conference.